we can start with a case presentation and go through the ER course and intraoperative and post-op and sort of get an idea of how I think this should be done. Uh, I learned a lot of this when I was a fellow at, at LA County USC because they trained the Navy surgeons and the Marines before they shipped out to Iraq. Uh, there's a few hubs in the country where they train the military folks. I think um, some folks train in Texas, some train at shock trauma in Baltimore, and then the Navy trains uh, at LA County. And so there's a lot of battlefield experience. And a lot of the research and data you'll see is comes out of the uh, recent conflict. And John Holcomb is a large, large research name who was Army forever colonel. And now he's a civilian working in San Antonio. And so I learned a lot of these strategies when I was there. And so there's thankfully now some data to back it up, not just some people telling you what works in the battlefield. So 37-year-old male, assault, multiple stab wounds to the chest. Initial, and this is a case from UCI. Um, he's a little bit cold when he got to us. Blood pressure looks good, but sort of really high diastolic. Heart rate's high. You might be thinking, it could be lots of reasons why that's going on. We know heart rate's not really predictive because you can be on drugs, you can be anxious, you can be in pain. But anybody who's been stabbed who has those vitals, you might be thinking maybe class two hemorrhage um, before the blood pressure were to drop. So on exam, bless you, we check his airway, decreased breast sounds on the left, the stab wounds were on that side of his body, palpable pulses, we knew the blood pressure in the field was decent, uh, disability is fine, and, and exposure for ABCDE shows these stab wounds. And again, you don't have to stop at B in terms of doing your chest tube or your needle when you're in the trauma bay because we know ATLS says one thing. That's usually when you're by yourself in a rural area and there's you know, no capabilities in your hospital and there's a nurse who can hand you things. So you have to do things very sequentially. In the trauma bay, we've got five, six people who can do things and so a lot of it happens simultaneously and you can do this assessment pretty quickly. Now, if someone had a compromised airway or their blood pressure was an issue, you might approach this sooner. But it just is useful information to even see the stab wounds. So supromedial, so above the nipple and medial to the nipple. So you're technically in the cardiac box, which is from the clavicle to the costal margin, between the nipples, anteriorly, tip of the scapula, posteriorly, you can hit the heart. Obviously, it could just be the lung. could be some great vessels. And then left axilla, thoracoabdominal means between the nipples and the costal margin. So you could have abdominal injuries if the patient's ex in expiration, diaphragm's high, you hit something underneath the diaphragm. Fully inspiring, the diaphragm's lower, it probably wouldn't. So that gives you lots of causes for decreased breath sounds or hypotension. And then a stab wound to the thigh, which would probably be able to tell you if there was bleeding, if there was a big hematoma or active bleeding out the wound. And he also got his FAST exam around that time, which did not show anything concerning for pericardial effusion. Um, and his HemoQ dropped. Now, the role of HemoQ is sort of not known. And the only data I've seen, I haven't looked in a while, but when I was starting out here, I wasn't used to that practice because I hadn't been doing that in other hospitals I worked in. So about five years ago, I looked at the data and there was a study presented around that year at the AAST, our big trauma meeting, that showed that a value less than 10 is predictive of someone needing blood. But sort of like CVP, most patients are higher or they're dropping or there aren't a lot of people who fall into that range because people don't re-equilibrate that quickly. Their hemoglobin doesn't drop right away until you get your sort of transcapillary refill or you get your fluid resuscitation. If you're not using blood, you're using crystalloid, then you dilute out your hemoglobin, then it will drop. But early on, it's usually not 
not less than 10. So that's not the most useful, but I think a dropping one, at least anecdotally, I think helps. Now, that's a great research study one you guys could do in your required projects. That would be very, very useful and something you can add to the literature. You've got a lot of, you've got lactates and blood gases on your trauma patients. You've got serial H&Hs. That's a good study. So the patient also had a history of being stabbed in the carotid artery. So he's, he's been back and forth. So with this information, we're obviously concerned about bleeding and or you know, into the chest or a pneumothorax or something in the abdomen potentially. It did not show anything on the ultrasound in the abdomen. But for me, the fast of the abdomen um, is really useful if you're hypotensive. If you're not hypotensive, you're going to probably get a scan depending on circumstances, a CAT scan. Um, and you need to have enough fluid to cause hypertension to be positive. And I know it varies, and in some of your hands, you're probably going to be fine fluid more than maybe some of the surgeon's hands. Uh, but in someone who's stable, it's not that useful in terms of blood pressure to me. Again, in this case, looking at the heart is very useful. So here's a chest x-ray. And very clearly there's haziness. And if someone's laying flat, supine, then it's not going to be a line if there's a hemothorax. It'll be hazy like this. So a little fusion look the same way in the ICU. Hopefully all your patients are sitting upright in the ICU if they're not. You know, you're doing something wrong, or they're coding. Um, so you're probably doing something wrong. No. Um, so this is how it would look if you had a lot of food in the chest. And so we know someone may be class 2 hemorrhage, which is what percent blood volume loss, potentially? What's that? Yeah, greater than 30 would be class 3 hemorrhage with hypotension. So 15 to 30, 20 to 30%. So in a 70-kilogram person, that's how much blood? Like a liter, yeah. So that is sort of class two, three hemorrhage would be 1,500 mLs generally. Um, so at least. Um, so could there be a liter of blood in the chest there? Yeah, probably. The, the chest probably holds three, four liters. Um, where else could somebody bleed that causes hypotension? It's sort of off the topic, but relevant to damage control resuscitation. Because if someone's in hemorrhagic shock, you're going to be thinking, where are they bleeding? So where else could somebody bleed? Abdomen, pelvis. I heard thigh. Stab wouldn't even could, but fracture is what we think about usually. And on the street, right, or on the on the at the scene. So what kind of patients that we aren't really suspicious for hemorrhagic shock come in? who have bled a lot in the street. Sort of a guess what I'm thinking. Um, not a violent patient, not, not, a, not a victim of assault. And where did they bleed from? Scalp. I saw it said scalp. Yeah, you can bleed a ton from the scalp. Here, put a rest of your drops. What's that? Yeah, yeah, good point. So those are people, or even old people in Coumadin, right? So these are people who are not really thinking about hemorrhagic shock, but drunks, people who fall, older people, kids, blood pressure can be low, you can bleed a lot, and it's not bleeding when you see them, because their blood pressure is low, they clotted, which is a really good example of if you resuscitate too aggressively, you pop the clot, and they bleed in front of you again. Often happens, even in a code. You do the orthorotomy, they're not bleeding, you get cross-clapped the aorta, you get a bunch of fluid in there, and they, you know, they usually don't survive, but they can at least get a perfusing rhythm back sometimes, then the internal memory starts bleeding. When you cut across it, they were dead, so they, it wasn't bleeding. So things will start to bleed once you fill the tank back up. So don't forget about the scalp and the street. So chest tubes placed, 550 mLs. Well, you know, I guess I would think there might be more, you know, based on the x-ray and the history um, and the probably class 2 hemorrhage. 
Then the blood pressure dropped. So that also doesn't make a ton of sense. He should have improvement if there's any tension, whether it's some fluid or air in there. And he gets a unit of blood, and we auto-transfuse and then pull her back um, about two-thirds of what came out. And this is something you guys should all be aware of. This is probably the most ideal resuscitation fluid you can imagine. It's fresh whole blood, which used to be used prior to World War II when they had to ship blood products over to the conflict. They couldn't, they, it was easier to store blood in different components, and then you also didn't waste it if you didn't need all of it. You could just give pack cells, you could give clotting factors, different things. So it, for multiple reasons, it was sorted, and then for commercial reasons, it was kept that way, because you could charge a lot more for five different types of products than you could for fresh whole blood. So, and some things don't need to be used. So there's some benefits to it, but you lose out on the ideal resuscitation fluid is fresh whole blood, which you can only get from the walking blood bank in military conflicts, which are soldiers. They find out someone's been shot, dog tags have blood types. They put a call out to all the soldiers on the base, whether well, it's a far forward unit or a regular um, military hospital, and they all show up with that blood type and they donate blood and they use it. Warm, fresh whole blood. Um, and so this is your way you can do that in your patients. It's ideal. Cell saver isn't even as good, which we use in the OR, because you went through a circuit, the pump, and you can have some breakdown of platelets and, and blood product and red cells, and there's an inflammatory response, kind of like being on cardiac bypass. Um, so this is great to do, and it's not really a pleurivac, I guess technically um, that's a brand name. It's, um, what's the chamber we use here? Um, it's a different brand. I'm blanking, but that's the, that brand is the one that you can auto-transfuse. You can't not auto-transfuse a pleurivac, so I'll, maybe the name will come to me. But if you ask for the correct one, in the ER techs and nurses always knew how to do it better than anybody in the ICU, so they can help you up. Um, then we use crystalloid boluses, small amounts, just to keep the blood pressure 80 to 90. And this is sort of another sort of term called permissive hypotension, which is part of a damage control treatment strategy or damage control resuscitation, uh, which is you don't want to pop that clot off. And if someone's blood pressure is 80 to 90, how can you figure that out on physical exam? What's that? I heard pulses. Which one? Radial is 80. Right. What would femoral be? 70 and carotid would be 60. Good. So if your radial pulse is present, you're probably at least over 80. Someone's talking to you, they're probably over, and they're not disoriented and, and lethargic, they're probably over 80, excuse me. Can you mention contraindications to auto-transfusion for mouth if they see it? Well, if there was a dirty cavity, um, which for the chest is not too common, if you have communication through the diaphragm, with the, with the viscous injury, it could be considered technically dirty. Um, is there something else you were thinking of, Christy? Yeah. So it, there isn't commonly that communication issue, but if you have that one in the thoracoabdominal area, it's technically possible that there could be an issue from the abdomen as well. Um, and in the OR, that's an issue with the blood that we suck out. So I personally don't like to give a lot of crystalloid. And what I was taught at County from Peter Ree, who you'll, you'll see his name on some of these papers, uh, he's the chief of trauma in Arizona. He was in the military for a long time on the Navy side. And he was sort of a guy who, sort of cowboy-esque. Um, he was a resident here at Irvine, a surgery resident. And he likes to, to say and do things sort of to, to cause a ruckus or to, to, for effect at times. He's really controversial. And, but he simulates discussion, and a lot of what he says is pretty smart. And he's asking outside the box, which is important. And, at LA County, it was really hard to get labs in the trauma bay and really hard to get labs in the OR. It was a joke. It was like three or four hours. So you had to work without them. 
and sort of learn how to resuscitate somebody who is bleeding and hypotensive without labs, which was very different than what I learned as a resident in Portland, Oregon, where I didn't actually, to be honest, do an ER thoracotomy in six years. I did it in the pig lab for a research year a lot to learn, but I never did a single one, never saw one in six years. In LA County, it was like one a day. And here, when I started, there's about one a week, uh, which is, you don't want any more than that. And you're kind of going crazy, and you're, you're getting HIV and hepatitis. Um, and you cut yourself on the ribs. So he was said, if someone's hypotensive from bleeding, I tell anesthesia, or if working with the ER team, wherever you are in the hospital, turn off the crystalloid and give six of blood, six of plasma, and one of platelets in that ratio until I say stop. And just do that. And that would be sort of reconstituting fresh whole blood. It's a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation strategy, which we'll talk about. And he goes, they don't have a salt water deficiency. They have a blood deficiency. No one needs saline or LR put back into the blood when they bleed. When they bleed. It's not going to help them. It's just preventing hypoperfusion in terms of pressure, but not oxygen delivery, right? Unless cardiac output suffering, which is a component. But you're not doing any more oxygen um, content to the blood. Um, and so he, that sort of stuck in my head, and he might throw in a bolus of hypertonic saline with it, which he's a big fan of to help with some immunological responses. We'll talk about those papers that recently came out, some of the work that was done here. And so minimally using crystalloid, just basically, if you don't want to get, commit a whole blood product, you can turn on the fluid, pressure gets up to 80, turn it off. It's sort of an easier thing to do. So that's how we were using it in this case. So not a, not a ton of hemorrhage at this point, but something else is going on. So repeat the x-ray with the chest tube in place. So put a little bit high. Um, it's probably great for a pneumothorax. And technically, blood should be evacuated from the pleural space, no matter where the tube is. If someone's laying on their back, especially if that's a posterior tube, it should be fine. Maybe it was an anterior tube. But there's obviously still some fluid in here. So repeat the fast. Again, is there blood in the belly? Because we had that thoracic abdominal wound. Is that why he's hypotensive? It's not really fitting together. We saw maybe a rim around the heart. So then you're worried about the penetrating cardiac injury, which is very, very salvageable. The most survivable patient who gets an ER thoracotomy is a stab wound to the heart. It's 30% survivability. In that patient population, if they come in pulseless or lose their pulse in front of you, stab wound to the heart, very easy, more easily fixable than any other cause. He remained hypotensive and tachycardic, so we took him to the OR. And if someone's hypotensive, you're not going to do the, the pericardial window, sub-xiphoid approach. Your fast should be telling you that you've got fluid there, used to astronomy to fix the heart versus the thoracotomy if you had to clamp the aorta or fix a wound in the chest. So it was sort of a debate for us. Um, he got a second unit of blood as we were going up to the OR, and so we felt we had time to decide where to go. If the window's positive, we're fixing the heart with a sternotomy. If the window, meaning a small hole in the pericardium looking for blood, if that's negative, we have a lot of bleeding in the chest, we can do a, a thoracotomy. So we did the window, and it was negative for blood. Pericardial, subxiphoid pericardial window. And so we put a second chest tube in um, on the left and had a lot of sanguineous output. So we put it lower, controlled, a little over the diaphragm, get better evacuation. And he dropped his pressure again, got another x-ray, there's still white out. So we're obviously not evacuating what's in there, it's still bleeding. So we did a left-sided thoracotomy to try and control bleeding. So what could be the possible causes of bleeding into the left chest? that would cause hypotension this significant, which we're probably at over one and a half liters, two liters of blood loss now. Is that common, stab wound to the aorta from the chest? Uh, intercostal artery is probably the most common. 
Uh, the aorta, hit, to get it from here, you'd have to maybe hit the arch. You could. Um, uh, it could be a mammary. It would probably be another good guess. To hit the aorta from here to here, you're going to have to hit the heart first. So it's really not too common to hit the aorta, but it's possible. Maybe laterally, this wound could have gone and hit the aorta. But again, you're probably going to hit the heart first. This is a wound that's not in the cardiac box, but at UCI, I had a stab wound to the heart that came from the patient's axilla. And it was deceiving because the, the ultrasound was negative, but the patient had a hemothorax. So if there's a hole in your pericardium, it's not going to stay in the pericardium. It's going to go into the chest. So you can't rule out a, a cardiac injury if you have a left hemothorax and a stab wound to the left chest. So we did a window. It was positive. We did a sterotomy. But, um, so you could hit the aorta, but that's not very common. Intercostal, mammary, more likely. What else? Could be the heart, as I said, bleeding into the left chest, but the window was negative. The window would have some blood in it if there was a pericardial injury. It wouldn't all leave completely. Any other causes? What fills up the majority of that space? The lung. Does the lung usually bleed one to two liters? Does it have enough blood supply to do that? Yeah, all the blood in the body goes there. It's a really high amount of cardiac output, right? Obviously, everything goes through there. But is the lung a common cause of this? Who votes yes? Hands up. Is the lung often is the lung a common cause? More than 20, 25 percent cause of hypotensive bleeding in the left chest. Raise your hands. Okay, why are we not raising our hands? <laughs> no one's giving me an answer yet. Why, why is it not a common cause? It's the most commonly hit thing, because it's the biggest. So why, is it, why do you not think it's a cause of hypotension? It doesn't really do that. There's another reason. But you're right, it's not common. There's another reason. No, the cavity's huge. There's really not good tamponade. It's part of the problem. You have the whole two, three, four liter cavity. What are, exactly. What are PA pressures? Right? They're 20 to 30 over 5 to 10, basically. So it's a low pressure system compared to arterial, systemic arterial, which is going to be, you know, 90, 120 systolic. So that's the main reason. Therefore, it can clot because it's a lower pressure system. So it's not really common. So we found that it was bleeding from the lung, <laughs> um, which is not common at all. But it was, that's, all it was, that's what it was in this case. It wasn't intercostal with its posterior anteriorly, and it was just a left upper lobe laceration. Um, it could have been bleeding from the spleen into the chest through a diaphragm lac. That's possible. Um, but in this case, it happened to be the lung. So we just stapled across it, and that was it, and left two chest tubes exactly where we wanted them, good placement, and we were done. But totally, he lost about two liters of blood. And this is his post-op film. This is curving down to here, so here's the hole. But obviously, remember, the diaphragm sits up here, but the recess goes down low. So when you have a chest x-ray upright and you don't see any blunting here, you can still have 200 mLs of blood down here, right? Or fluid when you learn that in the ICU. Or effusion. Transidate. So that's down low, which is great. And we've got one up high coming through there. So we lost about two liters of blood. And this was his blood products from, you know, the, the ER was one, one and a half, two units of blood. And then we gave this ratio, which is about one to one to one. Platelets are typically a six pack. So you're getting an old version of six units of, of platelets, so that's kind of six to six to six kind of issue. Um, he got four liters of fluid, which is, which is more than I would have liked, and um, he, he did fine, but that's probably a bit more than he needed. If you, maybe the blood products weren't there yet. 
Early on, the massive transfusion protocol, RIP protocol here, it wasn't, uh, sometimes it's harder to get than other times. Depends who's working. Made a lot of urine. So here were his blood gas results. Probably this one's the trauma bay, I'm guessing. I forgot. And then maybe we're leaving the OR at 7.05. Um, and so he obviously was acidotic throughout. And respiratory was part of it. And we could have blown off more with the ventilator and made this look a lot better. If this was down at 40, this would have been 7.3. No one would have been sweating. You'd go up 0.08 for every 10, right, PCO2. Bicarbonate 21 is not bad. It was down at 18, but he never really dropped that low. His base deficit was high, but never that bad. His hemoglobin did drop 10, 10, 9, 7. Remember it was 13, then 11 in the trauma bay. 10, 10, 9, 7. And he got one more unit of blood because of this 7 and some acidosis when he got to the ICU. But that was it. So you, there's a lot of patients you'll see that will come out of the OR after being hypotensive or a GI bleeder in the ER or a septic shock patient. And that's not a great example. Bleeding for another reason. And they need blood products and a lot of fluid for like a day or two, right? There's sort of this secondary phase of that injury and, and they are still needing resuscitation afterwards. And since I've started doing this, I found that patients rarely need more blood products if you, once you have to stop bleeding. But if you resuscitate them correctly from the get-go, you're, you're done. No more, they're not bleeding anymore. You've stopped the source of the source of bleeding. You've resuscitated them back to normal blood pressure with a one-to-one -one ratio, more or less. And so there's a reason to give blood anymore. They can hang out in the seven to 10 range hemoglobin and they're, they're cool. And to have received eight units of blood, so um, about 16 units of blood products in a couple hours and get nothing more is previously not very common. But I think hopefully now we'll see more and more of these patients do great. As you got to keep them warm also. And this is all he got right when he got, we finished sort of the anesthesia resuscitation. Exhibited the next day, went to the floor and post update two and went home after his chest was removed. So um, if you resuscitate well in the beginning, and this applies to you guys, whether you're in a trauma center in your future job or a level two area where you're transferring somebody or it's a GI bleeder, no matter where you're working, if you do this right from the get-go, especially in someone who's a cirrhotic, maybe who's got upper GI hemorrhage, they'll need the plasma on the blood and the platelets because they're going to be deficient to begin with, or a renal failure patient who's bleeding from a dialysis access, which can happen. Lots of things that you guys will see if you resuscitate with these principles. Now, this isn't, this isn't class one data, and I'll show you some papers, obviously, but um, I believe that it works, and I don't only really see a downside myself. We'll talk about some of the pros and cons. Go ahead, here's Still can't believe that was chosen. <laughs> So this is the kind of patient that would need a damage control resuscitation. This is what the room looks like when we're done. Um, I always get a good feeling. Well, one of the patients alive. If, they, if they've left the room, they're alive. So you've, because <laughs> if they're they're dead, they stay there and get put in the black bag, and the coroner comes. But if they if you're leaving and the room looks like this and they're still alive, that's usually probably was a good time and everyone worked hard and did a good job and that's always good. Um, I don't know. I don't know. This is something from Ben Taub, actually. As I got this slide from Marty Schreiber. You'll see some slides from OHSU where I was a resident. Um, this, wasn't a, this wasn't from there. So um, these are some pretty um, seminal papers done in various time frames, uh, obviously going back to 93 even. And I only included this because I had the, the good fortune of working with a lot of folks on here. The middle paper is from UCI, but Trunking Mullins in Portland. I learned a lot from them. And, then Schreiber, and uh, in Portland later, and Peter Reed from LA County, and then Hoyt, Sinat, and Wilson here. And interestingly, 
these guys would say, if you don't swell, you can't get well. That was sort of the post-Vietnam era of folks. And these guys were old were military surgeons. And that's where Da Nang Lung was originated. And ARDS was originated. And surgical patients was getting too much crystalloid, or even albumin was used back then. And that came out of sort of Korea and Vietnam. People would die in the field in World War II, but once they had helicopter evacuation, which was MASH, Mobile Army Support Hospital, they would fly in on helicopters. They could save people. And they started using crystalloid, and then even more so in Vietnam. And then they get get massive crystalloids. They would swell Michelin Man, ARDS. They peed off like a week later. And the way I was taught to resuscitate and use blood products was you give up 10 units of blood based on what the labs tell you, what the INR is, what the platelets are, what the fibrinogen is, hemoglobin is. That's what you decide to give for your next round of blood products. Then you check the labs again when those finish in two to four hours, and you go from there. You're two to four hours behind if you're doing that, which is very different than Peter Reed telling me, I don't care what the labs are. If you're if hypotensive, hypotensive from bleeding, just give blood, six, six, and one, until I say stop. And it's a very different way of learning things, and that's changed over the course of time from the 90s to the 2000s. This paper was well before its time, and we'll talk about it. So the major causes of bleeding in trauma are, the most common cause is head injury. But some of those are early, and some of those are late. And then the second would be hemorrhage, or a combination of, a, of the three. And the late deaths can be multi-system organ failure. And then the peaks we hear about, this has somewhat been debated. It depends on how much coroner data you use and how many pe people from the field are getting captured by your data versus those who died in the hospital. And again, people die at the scene, the majority die at the scene. And then this would be emergency care. And early on, this is probably from bleeding, maybe some brain dead people. And this is going to be brain death and multi-system organ failure or withdrawal life support on someone who's got a bad neurologic injury. So if you can work on hemorrhage, you can obviously prevent this. And the resuscitation strategy might affect this. Because there can be downsides to a resuscitation that's crystalloid-based that dilutes you out, causes acidosis, makes you cold if it's not warm fluid, gives you coagulopathy. It can, it can cause you to not survive early. And if you do get through the early part with a less than ideal resuscitation, you might still die later from organ failure from all the inflammatory response you're getting from the persistent ischemia that gets, again, gets reperfused when your blood pressure is better, or the results of the crystalloids, which are a drug. Blabby fluids are a drug. They're of, of something that's synthetic that affects the body. Physiology, it's a drug, and they can have a negative effect. So the questions that come up in terms of resuscitation are, what should you use, how should you give it, and stop the bleeding? And as ER physicians, you can sometimes control bleeding, but you can definitely be involved in these two decisions for sure. And the old thinking, what ATLS still teaches, although there's some talk about permissive hypotension in non-head injury, non injury patients because you don't want to decrease cerebral perfusion pressure while you're tolerating a lower blood pressure. So those will end up being tough patients. It would be low blood pressure, two liters of crystalloid, saline or LR, depending on who taught you. And then you can maybe use colloids or hypertonic saline. These are good arguments. We know albumin, the SAFE study says it doesn't matter, and therefore because it's expensive, maybe it's bad. And there's actually a trend towards higher mortality in trauma patients in the SAFE study, which was the large um, Australia, New Zealand um, randomized control trial using albumin versus saline resuscitate in the ICU. So issues with that study. But the trauma a priori randomization criteria. It wasn't a subgroup analysis. They randomized based on trauma. And it showed a p-value of like 0.08 or 0.07 for a higher mortality in the albumin group. When they subgrouped that, it was pretty much the head injured patients that did worse. So head injury, albumin, probably bad. That's class two data. Um, 
And the problem with that study also is they didn't use it as needed for hypotension or you know, based on having a low albumin or they didn't respond to crystalloids, let's try albumin. They didn't use a real world approach. They always got albumin or they always got saline for 28 days. That's ridiculous, no one does that. So it was a way of having a controlled study as controlled as Artisnet typically is that you have to eliminate variability to study it, but it's not really real world. But it's worth at least thinking, septic patients did better, Toronto patients did worse with albumin. Um, but that's obviously a decision you can make sometimes, and, and I personally will use it in hypoalbuminemic or hypoproteinemic patients with ALI, lung injury, or other organ system failure. We have a lot of liver failure, transplant patients at Cedars, so that is people who obviously need some albumin at times. So there are times to use it, um, but the SAFE study sort of poo-pooed it as a general fluid, but that was sort of not going to be done anyway. And then you can use blood products in what ratio when you give them. How do you give it? Wide open, two large bore IVs, enough to adequately perfuse, but not too much is another strategy, or going with permissive hypotension or a hypotensive resuscitation. And something Don Trunke, who I, whose name was up there, um, taught us as residents in Portland, and he's sort of, Orange County is actually famous for trauma in a not, not ideal way in terms of trauma centers forming. It was, uh, UCSF had a trauma center and a trauma system locally and um, the West was the lead author, and Orange County didn't, at the time, have an organized trauma system. So they did expert panel reviews of um, death records, which was in the old way of doing uh, comparisons of trauma. And then they had we all have statistical models now that you guys use and we use for different things, and that's how we now compare expected outcomes. Um, but back in the day, they had experts say that was preventable, that was not preventable. So they compared morgue data from Orange County versus UCSF and found a much higher preventable death rate in Orange County with a non-organized trauma system. So that led to a lot of impetus to have one. And Orange County wound up having one of the first organized trauma systems, which is very organized now. I think much more organized than, than LA County. Part of that is it's limited to three hospitals uh, and the leadership and folks who've worked here, but a very organized EMS system now. Um, but that was one of the studies that was done. And Trunkey's, again, been a, a, a war surgeon and he was the I think chief, I don't forget the term, but chief medical officer for the first Persian Gulf conflict. And he would walk in the trauma bay, you know, gray-haired guy, he's got his like, reading glasses and his sweater vest, looks like Mr. Rogers, and he would walk up to like, he loved the old ladies that fell down, and he'd shake their hand, he'd go, how you doing, Mr. So-and-so? He'd go, yeah, yeah, and he'd be testing everything, his fingers on the radial artery, he's talking to them, and he's feeling if they have cold and clammy skin, and if they can grip, and follow commands and interact. So you've got mental status, you've got blood pressure, and you've got perfusion by shaking someone's hand and talking to them. And if they had all that, he'd sit down, he didn't care what you did, you weren't gonna hurt the patient, he would just sit there and write his note. And then you kind of make jokes, <laughs> make fun of you, and talk to the old ladies. So that would be enough. Enough is a radial pulse and they're talking to you and they don't have signs of shock, which would be cold climbing skin. Why in California would someone be cold or wet? It doesn't rain and it's not cold. So if they're wet and cold, they're in shock and it's because they're bleeding. At least you have to assume that in trauma, right? At least at first. Okay. And from a surgical perspective, stopping the bleeding is obviously crucial. So here's some data. People always talk about LR being worse. They heard somewhere along the way that LR is bad, it causes more apoptosis or blah, 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 blah. Well, Peter Ree figured out the reason for that. And this was, did a lot of pig model. We've probably killed, I don't know, 5,000 pigs. There are some things that can come out of animal research. Not a lot of it translates. We all like translational research, right? But there are some things that you can learn from this. And the, the point here, neutrophil activation, which would be a surrogate of white cells being primed to go out and have dysfunctional inflammation, so may cause multi-organ failure later after hemorrhagic shock. That's the late deaths. 
So each of these sets of uh, time points have four fluids, LR plus hemorrhage, LR by itself, so you're controlling for the hypotension, shed blood, and hypertonic saline, 7.5%, which is what the future studies were done on. We typically use 3% in our hospital, I think here and at, at Cedars. And what you see is the asterisks are the significant ones. And you're finding that LR plus hemorrhage and LR infusion alone is the one that had the increased oxidative stress. So sometimes just the fluid itself can do it, and then especially when you add shock later on, the shock also showed that at these different time points. So here's baseline, hemorrhage 15 minutes, hemorrhage, then they've shocked for 30 minutes, shocked for 60 minutes, which would be a battlefield. You've got to transport them or they're in the scene, then paramedics can call it right away. Then they show up and you resuscitate, and then an hour later, two hours later, three hours later, and they're drying. These are probably peripheral circulating neutrophils, um, so you can use the same animal. And so crystalloid can lead to inflammatory response. Hypertonic saline doesn't. It has a similar inflammatory profile as shed blood, which is the ideal resuscitation because you're replacing what you've lost. So then they looked at pulmonary apoptosis, um, which is, you know, these BACs and BCL2 are things that can look at that when you, when you measure those assays. And they showed that the LR was the issue. And then ketone ringers, it's a different cation than, than lactated ringers. There's also uh, ringers acetate. There's different types of ringers, but we use LR. LR was bad. What they found was, and people were like, oh, I use normal saline now, right? So for years, people use normal saline only. We like it for head injury anyway, higher sodium content. We like that for the, for the high ICP patients. But LR got a bad rap. Turns out there's enantiomers. We're going back to biochem. There's D enantiomers or isomers, whatever it is, and L1. And D is for death and L is for living in lactate. All LR is now L-lactate, if you look at your bottle. There's no D-lactate in the bags of fluid. So this doesn't happen anymore. The new fluid does not cause this problem. All the fluid that we get that's produced period in the world does not have this problem anymore. LR is not worse than saline. Something I learned doing hemorrhagic shock experiments with liver lax when I was a resident, comparing LR versus saline, which again, a lot of folks who learned this wanted to disprove those myths that having LR is bad, because we thought it was better for some reasons showed that if you resuscitate to a pre-injury blood pressure, randomized, blinded to which fluid it is, blood pressure drops, turn on the pump, give fluid, blood pressure gets back to the map pre-injury, and you turn off the pump. You do that for four to six hours. The pigs who got saline needed twice as much fluid to maintain that same blood pressure as those who got LR. That seems pretty extreme, right? Well, they had a huge natriuresis. They peed a lot more. And that may have to do with a different diuretic effect from getting a lot of saline. I don't know the exact mechanism of it, but the sodium, maybe more sodium was delivered, more got left in the tubules, more pulled fluid with it, and it wasn't absorbed as much, who knows. But they had big naturesis, so they had to keep up with the intravascular volume because they're urinating so much. And um, they also had a hyperchloremic acidosis. So high chloride, the lactate was normal because you were resuscitating to a, the pre-injury blood pressure, so blood perfusion was adequate. They were peeing, obviously but they had a high chloride and a low bicarb for non-gap acidosis, so that pH can be an issue. Sometimes you don't know what a hyperchloric acidosis is, and you chase it with more saline. Ah, oh, look, it got worse. Then you think they're bleeding or there's something dead somewhere, and you do surgery unnecessarily. Uh, or if you're coagulopathic, that acidosis is bad. And some of the blood products we give are factors, like we used to give factor seven, we'll talk about that, which we don't really give anymore for hemorrhagic shock, um, at least in most patients. Um, that doesn't work in an acid, acidic environment. Um, 
and they had more of a dilutional coagulopathy because they had twice as much fluid. And we were only giving saline or crystalloid. We weren't giving blood products. So I believe LR is superior, but I will use normal saline in a head injured patient. You talk about uh, lactated renders and how, if it at all affects your uh, serial lactate. Good question. Uh, I also mentioned that when we did pulmonary um, uh, transcription factors for inflammation, they were equivalent. LR and saline have the same amount of inflammation. Um, so it does not cause it on multiple types of assays. So will the lactate level itself go up? Um, in the pigs who got a really large volume of fluid, the lactate was a little higher. Still, I think normal range, but like brain normal can be like two to three or something. So it was a little higher than the normal, statistically higher than the normal saline pigs, but there was no drop in bicarb because of it. So there's no acidosis. You can have lactate, lactatemia or whatever without protons being created if you're giving someone lactate, right? In burn patients, we don't often see this. And so it's raised, it raises questions if it, will, if it really will actually happen in humans. Can you give enough LR to cause that problem, you'd think a burn patient would who gets like 20 or 30 liters of fluid in the first 24 hours. It doesn't typically happen in, the, in our patients. In the pigs, we did see that. But again, if there's not an acidosis with it, you should be okay. LR can still cause a hyperclimic acidosis because of the strong ion difference, and that's another lecture, but you're still giving more sodium. You're still giving too much chloride when you give LR than you are used to in your body. Because normal serum sodium is 140, serum chloride's 100. That difference is 40. That's your strong ion difference. Normal saline is 154 and 54. So you're getting an extra 40 milliequivalents of chloride per liter than your body is used to, basically, because you're giving equivalent sodium and chloride. If someone's on TPN for several days or weeks and their bicarb goes down, you switch the chloride off for acetate, right? You stop giving them chloride. Chloride in a solution is acidotic. It may cause your kidneys to excrete bicarb as you're reabsorbing all the chloride you're getting. Maybe that's the reason for it. I'm not sure exactly. but LR is 130 of sodium and 109 for chloride, so it's a difference of 21. It's half as bad as saline, but only half as good as giving some plasma light, which is good, or fresh whole blood, or what your serum's used to. So it's still not perfect, but it's better than saline for hypochlorinic acidosis. <coughs> Separate question. So all these differences, not only they all just make a infusion product, but it's the same. Yeah, they do. Plasma light, which you have in the OR, it's more expensive. And I mean, I learned about this as a resident, and when I went to other places and talked about it, people hadn't heard about it always, and it's not widely known that this happens. It's becoming more widely known. So maybe folks will stock plasma light in the, in the trauma bay or in the rigs. Uh, there's other ones that are similar to that that are like 140 and 100. They're more physiologic fluids. Why does it Yeah, whoever makes it, maybe, or maybe just whoever's manufacturing it. But it is more expensive, and on the course of millions of patients a year, it would, it would cost the difference where saline and LR are pretty cheap. I don't know if that's why we don't stock it in our ERs, but um, if you use LR early on, you probably won't have this problem as often. But it's good to know that that fluid exists if you want to use it. So this, this paper sort of changed everything. So getting back to some, some data on how to handle patients in hemorrhagic shock. And this is penetrating torso injuries. Trauma study, New England Journal of Medicine, one of the first ones, and it was out of Ben Taub in Houston. Ken Maddox was the trauma director there, a very famous guy, thoracic surgeon, trauma surgeon. Bickle was the lead author. And they did alternating days of the week is how they randomized. So it wasn't technically randomized. But it was easier to have the ambulances go out and perform one way on day one and a different way on day two than, than having an envelope or something. And so it was either scoop and run, 
Maybe you put an IV in, maybe you don't for penetrating torso trauma. Get in the ambulance, take them to the hospital, and let them handle it there. Or get your IVs in, start fluid resuscitation if someone's hypotensive, and then bring them. So it takes more time, and you're giving fluids. What they found was, and they were using Ringer's acetate, um, as not, not LR, so there's less acidosis issues potentially, or inflammation issues as well at the time. This is an old study. So uh, pretty good distribution of patients. People, before they arrived at the hospital, received about a liter versus less than 100 mLs, which makes sense because they're giving fluids. In the trauma bay itself, in the trauma center, uh, in the ER, they also received more fluid. Is that because getting fluid early begets more fluid, or just because they continued that strategy, so to speak, but they needed less fluid? Because once they got to the hospital, the care should have been the same, basically. And they got more blood products. Again, it's because they got more fluid, they needed more blood products. There's this Papa clot theory. There's dilutional coagulopathy, potentially. So maybe if you give fluid, you bleed more, and therefore you need to give more fluid once you start, start giving it. In the OR itself, there was no significant difference in crystalloids given. There was a strong trend towards less blood products, blood itself, pack cells in the in delayed resuscitation group. Um, no difference in plasma or platelets. No difference in autologous or cell saver or transfusion. And no difference in colloids. And in terms of how fast fluid was given, it was slower, so that might signify adding everything together, all these trends come out to be less fluid in the in, in delayed resuscitation group. So you give them a little bit if they need it, but just try and stop the bleeding and then give them fluid. Because again, if you give them fluid, even blood products, while the, there's a hole in the vessel, they're still just going to keep bleeding out of it. So your goal is if they're alive when they, the paramedics get them, they're probably going to be alive to get to the OR if you do it really quickly. And so they get fluid as, as minimally needed. And here's the data that really turned the trauma world upside down. And it's been hard to repeat. Uh, folks have, are trying to do another large study now to look at this. Um, but the blood pressure was lower on arrival, which makes sense. They weren't giving as much fluid. Um, hemoglobin was higher, though. Interesting, right? You're not diluting it out. Because it shouldn't drop unless you give fluid for several hours. Platelet count was higher. It's not diluted. PT was lower. It's not diluted. PTT was lower, not diluted. Uh, pH was unchanged. Okay, so this is not causing hypoperfusion in a bad way. Or maybe there was a little bit more hypoperfusion here, but you're giving chloride here. Um, I'm not sure what the makeup is of Ringer's acetate, but it's probably the 130 and 109 ratio, I'm guessing, like LR is. And then bicarb was then, was then changed. So you're perfusing enough, but you're not diluting out your blood products. Okay, so there's, they're making an argument. And then outcomes, survival benefit. How often do you see survival benefit in a study, especially a pre-hospital study? Really, really hard to prove. And partly why this was attacked is because it was sort of, sort of heresy. Well, you have to get two liters of fluid. HTLS said so. Um, and this showed it improved survival, 70% versus 62%. And then when they excluded early death, they stayed in the hospital less likely, less, less long, uh, not in the ICU, but in the total hospital stay. And there's a trend towards less intraoperative blood loss, but not significant. So they had improved outcomes. And there's maybe a reason for that in terms of all the, all the arguments if you look at them. So that gets into the argument of the bloody vicious cycle of uh, the coagulopathy of trauma. And now there's some articles on acquired coagulopathies. Yeah? Just a quick question. What was the mean time in the hospital? I don't remember, but it was uh, less than a half hour in terms of scene time and transport time. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking in the teens in my head. I don't remember though. So I'm just curious that if if they if they didn't give them fluid, did they have more of a sense of urgency to get them to the hospital? Was the there was not a. Was there a 
There wasn't a difference in that process that was looked at, and they didn't, I didn't show the table for that, but there was not a difference statistically. Um, so coagulopathy we think happens from bleeding and dilution from getting fluids, or if someone's cirrhotic or has an acquired problem. But just tissue injury and shock itself can cause coagulopathy without getting anything. If your patient comes in the door, they can have a high INR, and they just had a gunshot wound to the chest. Why is that? Well, that comes down to here from cellular shock, tissue injury itself. You get contact activation and activation, and you get sort of a consumptive coagulopathy, both to try and stop bleeding from holes and a systemic problem. And then you bleed, and then you get more blood products or, or fluid, and you get hypothermic from bleeding because your, your body is shutting down. You're not making as much heat. People are cold. If they come in cold in California, they're probably in shock. That's why they're cold. Very few are obviously left out that long. Um, and then if you don't resuscitate well, you can get clotting factor deficiencies. So, but the key thing to know is tissue injury and shock itself, we've learned a lot about this, can cause coagulopathy. And if someone comes in from the trauma bay and they, their coags get checked right away and their INR is high, it's actually a, a marker of a higher injury severity or more tissue injury and a higher mortality. So these are all the causes that can cause, all the things that can cause this. And if you look at these causes, you think about the treatments. And hypertonic saline was designed to treat shock and decrease inflammation. Not designed for it, but it was recently studied for that purpose. Um, there are some antifibrinolytics like tranexamic acid, which was a huge study in uh, Europe. 20,000 patients to show a mortality benefit when people got tranexamic acid who were at risk for bleeding. Not an awesome study. It takes 20,000 patients to show p-value less than 0.05. It makes you kind of wonder. Um, the mortality was like 1.9% versus like 2 point something percent. It was very low because they had a lot of not injured people, but it was significant to use antifibrinolytic. Yeah. Anywhere, anywhere. That first study was out of Houston was penetrating torso injury. So this is a paper sort of describing acute traumatic coagulopathy, and it, this was also in Europe, and um, I think London. Um, and what's that? Um, and so there were people who were helicoptered in, and they drew coax on everybody, and they defined uh, coagulopathy as a, basically INR of 1.5, or these ratios in general being 1.5 times normal range for your thromboplastin time, or PT or PTT. And um, these were taken from their, their country's trauma registry or data set. And the mean ISS was 20, which is pretty high. A moderate to severe injuries over 15. 58% had an ISS over 15. 24% of those on arrival had a coagulopathy. And so you had to be basically helicoptered in, which usually signifies some degree of you know, intense, intensity of trauma. It's a selection factor for sort of severely injured patients, or they were far away. So that time could be bad. And those who had a high INR had a higher mortality, 46% versus 10%. They didn't get blood products. They didn't get a dilutional coagulopathy from resuscitation. They just had more injuries, which is why they were coagulopathic. So this sort of helps make more of that argument. And again, based on the higher the ISS, the greater the percentage of patients who had a coagulopathy. And if you had a coagulopathy stratified by ISS, your mortality was higher. So high ISS with coagulopathy, much higher mortality. So even within an injury severity score, someone who's coagulopathic is more severely injured but he isn't captured by a score. There's lots of reasons why that could be. Um, Pre-existing disease, 
multiple holes in the same cavity, you only get credit for one injury per cavity, right? So if you have a gunshot wound to the chest, transmediastinal, heart, cava, lung, spinal cord, you get one score for that entire cavity, but you have four or five injuries. So that's not, ISS has limited limits with penetrating trauma, for sure. So, but it's making an argument for the coagulopathy. So these early massive transfusion protocols, as I described sort of when my training has sort of evolved over this period, was early crystalloid by ATLS. After 10 or more units, you start giving um, blood products. And you should start giving plasma after 10 units or when your INR is high, or maybe one unit for every four units of blood. And these were things that were talked about more historically and probably are still done in many centers. And polio transfusion when the count's low. But again, if you're waiting to draw blood, and then you're waiting for the labs to come back, and then you're waiting for the blood products to show up, that's two hours at least behind the physiology represented by those labs. So you can do it sort of um, empirically. Here's a paper out of UCI that was basically before and after study. Halfway through the study, in the early 90s, they created a massive transfusion protocol, or RIP protocol you guys have heard about. And it's, it's evolved more recently to reflect the one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, but it at least was a massive transfusion protocol to send some blood products and have the pathologist be on board. And they wanted to see if patients who had a 50-unit resuscitation in the first 24 or 48 hours, I think 48 hours, if you receive 50 units of blood, you obviously have a very high mortality. They want to look at those patients alone. Some people think they're not salvageable. Clearly, there can be lots of survivors. But this was a survival over time. And the peak was in 1996. I'll make a joke about that in a second. But um, it sort of increased over time steadily. It said, let's just draw a line in the sand in 92 and do a before and after, which is somewhat arbitrary, but nonetheless. They showed that in each injury severity score category, the more survival was higher. Only this one was significant for the lesser injured patients. Uh, and again, you're sort of limited by numbers. I think it's only 40 some patients because there aren't that many that get 40, 50 units of blood. So over like 10 years, there's only like four or five a year, right? So it's hard to show statistical significance. But the overall mortality combining the groups was significantly lower mortality, higher survival. So what happened in 1996? Michael Lackle became the trauma director. <laughs> so you can give him all the credit. So here are some tables from there. If you can, I think you guys can probably see them in a small room. So what this basically meant was those who survived had lower red cell to platelet transfusion ratios, meaning relatively more platelets in the survivors. So lower red cell ratio and lower red cell to plasma ratio, 1.8 versus 2.5. This one was only a trend. Um, more FFP trend again. But suggesting they started giving more blood products, not just pack cells. And then in the before and after, what was the strategy used? There was, again, significantly fewer red cells. This is the after. Fewer red cells per platelet transfusion and fewer red cells per FFP. Um, this is the p-value. Again, only a trend here, but significant for platelets. So more people were getting platelets, clearly, going on there. And over time, was there a good R-value? Our correlation coefficients are only great. If your R-value is not over 0.8, you're probably not doing very well. This one was significant. So people were getting more platelets, for sure, was the big difference that happened. They also started trying to control hypothermia and have damage control surgery techniques. So there was um, shorter time to get rewarmed. And time in the operating room for the first surgery was lower, and the second damage control take back was lower. So they're trying, they're trying to warm, they're trying to use warm fluids and blood products, they're spending less time in the OR, less time open, getting cold, and using more platelets and maybe more plasma. And they felt that maybe this was sort of the factors contributing to the improved mortality, improved survival, more efficient and effective rewarming, improved use of damage control techniques, 
and using blood product resuscitation. This study is well before its time. No one wrote about this until the, the second Iraq conflict after this point. So this happened in 1999, this paper, which is data from the early 90s. So this, this paper, paper was well ahead of its time, but now it gets quoted a fair amount. So this was some work that was done in Irvine, which is always nice to hear about. So this is more of a computer model based on some animal research and some human studies, trying to predict at what point do you get coagulopathic? At what point will you start um, having um, not suboptimal clot formation? And based on how many units of pack cells you get and FFP. And this sort of defines the crossover time or the critical intervals, the total number of minutes during which a client test is subhemostatic. So when you start coming off the the floor, basically, into the gray zone, you're starting to become coagulopathic. And that happens that if your ratio of pack cells to plasma, it should be 3 to 2, which is 1.5 pack cells to plasma, or 0.66 plasma to pack cells, 2 to 3. So much lower than even the study that was published out of Irvine. And it's, it's between 1 to 1 and 1 to 2. So meaning 1 plasma per pack cell, to one plasma per two pack cells puts you sort of in this ratio of two to three. And this is a model that sort of supports that. It's more things making a good argument. So if you also don't give any plasma and you're at your third unit, it's going to be hard for you to correct the coagulopathy. So you need to start giving it early. Which is why the protocol here will send up, you've got some, do you have blood in the ER yet? In the fridge? I know something that's been worked on. But you can get your uncross-matched blood very quickly. But now the Blood bank here keeps thawed plasma at all times that you can get two units right away if you want. And it's, I think, AB, universal recipient um, plasma, so there's no reactions. And then they go type specific after that or try to. I think they switch to, to B, is it, after that? Um, and so you can get plasma early here. You don't, it's not just for trauma patients if I don't want to speak not working here anymore, but I believe it was designed to be used on people, not just trauma patients. So GI hemorrhage or other people can use this to get plasma early. Otherwise, you're waiting for tap and cross. They got thought. It's an hour. It's too late. So get the thawed plasma. So here's some study out of um, the second conflict looking at, retrospectively, ratio of plasma to pack cells. And again, this is reversing the ratio. The last slide said 3 to 2. So now it would be 2 to 3, or um, you know, 1 to 1.5. And so you're looking at a low plasma ratio, very low plasma amounts given, high mortality. Medium amount of plasma given 1 to 2.5, whereas there's a high 1 to 1.4, which would be similar to that model you just saw, basically. So improved mortality when people got more plasma compared to red cells. Retrospective data worth creating a hypothesis. So they also looked at very specific subgroup analyses, excluding different types of trauma um, to exclude thoracic trauma, exclude neurotrauma, exclude those who got whole blood because it could be helpful, exclude those who got factor 7a because it could skew things. We, we know now that doesn't probably help. But in a limited resource capacity, maybe it's good when you can't carry a bunch of blood products with you in a you know, far forward thing. So again, having a lot of plasma had the lowest mortality in every subgroup analysis. So it's good to see that it's consistent and holds up. But again, it's not as good as prospective data. So damage control resuscitation is permissive hypotension, judicious use of crystalloids, again, caveat for head injured patients because you don't want to decrease the real perfusion pressure. Because the worst, the two worst things, the two most bad, the two, the things you want to avoid in head injury are hypotension and hypoxia. Any single event of either one of those can increase mortality in some large, large series that have been done. Again, it's not awesome data, but it makes sense to avoid that. 
stop the source of bleeding, and that may be easier to do if you aren't flooding the intravascular space and popping your clots off. Early blood products, and not just pack cells. A 1 to 1 to 1 to 2 ratio is good. And again, a, a unit of platelets now, or a phoresis pack, is a six pack, so it really is six to six to six. And then one of cryo if you want. Cryo is optional. And then I give calcium for every sort of four-ish units of blood, of pack cells, because of the citrate that it's blended with to prevent it from clotting. If you don't give the calcium, you can also have hypotension for that reason. If you one pearl to have in the ER or the ICU, I learned on cardiac surgery, is the opposite of a calcium channel blocker is calcium. So if someone's coding and you know what to do or someone's hypotension, can't get control of it, give them a gram of calcium push and you'll get some time to figure it out possibly. And it's obviously relevant for the clotting cascade also. That's a good board question too. Is like you get paresthesias, like the patient's getting paresthesias or something like that. What's going on? They're not hyperventilating from the transfusion. They're getting hypoglycemic. Okay. All right. Good to know. Um, there is an ongoing discussion about what should you do if someone does not need six units of blood. Because again, the argument is you need to give plasma early within your third to fourth unit or you're going to get cardiopathic. But if you don't need a lot of pack cells, you're wasting the plasma. But how do you know who's going to stop bleeding shy of six units of blood? Hard to know. And the reason this is an argument is LA County had a huge database from the blood bank and then their trauma registry of several thousand patients, and they had several hundred that needed less than six units of blood. They looked at how much, how much plasma they got. And they found that those who got more plasma, overall less than six units in the first 12 hours, which again, they sort of mined the data. Instead of using 24 hours for their transfusion cholesterol, they used 12. I know how things work in a lot of these places and studies, having done many of myself. Where is the sweet spot? Well, it works at 12 with Cal 12, our, our inclusion criteria. So there's some issues there, it's retrospective anyway. But they use propensity scoring, which is a way to sort of match patients as best you can to try and be a surrogate for randomization. But it's not a surrogate. Nothing's a surrogate for randomization. But it's the best you can do retrospectively. And with propensity scoring, meaning propensity to die, they try to look at just the effect of getting more pl fresh frozen plasma. And those who got more plasma had a higher mortality. And actually, no difference in mortality, but more complications, more ARDS. The problem is being able to control for who was sick enough to have the trauma surgeon decide to give you plasma, you can't do it retrospectively. But the argument's at least being made, if you don't need more than six units, you shouldn't give plasma. But you got to start early if you're going to need more than six. So that's the big caveat. So everybody you use blood on that you order two or four units of blood does not need plasma. If you're hypotensive from needing blood, you probably will because that's 1.5 liters at six units of blood. Correct the acidosis that will help with your, your coagulopathy and your, and your potential cardiac performance. Correct hypothermia. And then, I mean, this is a whole other lecture, but factor 7A, prospective, randomized, multinational study sponsored by the manufacturer, no difference, terminated, factor 7A, no role in trauma, hemorrhagic shock. Now, Coumadin patient, maybe. Serotic patient, maybe. Different story. Limited, no blood products available because you're a small hospital and you don't have plasma available. It's something to use, maybe. But generally speaking, no role. We started using factor 9 um, at um, Cedars. It's like a tenth of the cost, which is probably because people that want to use factor 7A and probably has less procoagulant problems, thromboses or MIs or strokes or things that people worry about in these patients. Most of the big studies have not shown there are actually are more clinically significant. Thromboses, a couple of them did in head bleed patients, but yet still there was an improved mortality in the intracranial hemorrhage patients. When they repeated that study, it didn't pan out either, although there was less buildup of blood on CT scans. So there probably are some niches for factor 7A, but not as much as the manufacturer would have liked, and they stopped producing and advertising it because the study was negative. 
Other procoagulants, I mentioned tranexamic acid, big study, I think, in Lancet, worth reading. Um, I'll use on patients who come in on platelets or, or I'm sorry, aspirin or plavix, I'll use Amicar to try and reverse that platelet effect. That's not level one data by any stretch, but if you give someone platelets and they have plavix, it's going to affect those platelets and it's going to keep happening for several days. So that's why we sort of have platelet um, activating assays or PFAs, platelet factor antibody, or whatever the platelet function assay is drawn here, and at least it was in all the critical traumas. Um, there's some data that that may not be the great assay, but people are trying to figure out a way to control this, and coagulopathy would be from an antiplatelet agent. Hypertonic saline, you should all be aware that two huge, probably the biggest trauma studies in this country ever done. Um, Dave Hoyer, our former chair, was sort of the lead senior investigator. Eileen Bolger was the lead author on them. She's sort of an up-and-comer, and he was the senior guy. And um, in both the hypotensive pre-hospital patient, no improvement in mortality, maybe even suggestion of harm, it was stopped early. And that might have been because they popped the clots, because it pulled fluid in too well, raised blood pressure too well, and people wound up bleeding and having maybe some more blood loss and more blood transfusions in the hypertonic saline group. So that study was stopped. And they thought, well, the head injured patients who are hypotensive, low GCS and hypotensive, that one's going to work. Didn't work. So there's no proven role for this. We often use it for ICP control, which is different than hypotensive resuscitation, but it does decrease dysfunctional inflammation. And then damage control surgery would be get out of the OR as soon as you can, and stop the bleeding as soon as you can. This is the RIP protocol here when it was being revised a couple of years, um, maybe two years ago. Um, you guys should all become familiar with it. Don't obviously try and read this, but get a copy from uh, online. It should be easily obtainable, but it has to do with having uh, plasma available immediately. And that makes sure the nurses and the trauma team send enough of the blood tubes so that we don't wind up pulling our hair out when the blood bank says, we need another specimen. And this, this tells you why you guys went into emergency medicine. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs>